you have your Bibles, I do invite you. We're going to start in Colossians. Um, it's not where we're going to stay, but um, today we're coming back to part of the vision statement that the elders have adopted for uh, this church, ECC. Um, and, and just to, uh, I'll read it and then just talk about a little bit of what we did last week and what I hope to do this week and next. Um, but, but the vision asks, answers the question, what do we seek to be? And the answer to that is to be a faithful, healthy, and spirit-filled church, promoting the kingdom of God and making it visible in our lives and throughout the greater Cincinnati area. Last time, uh, we talked about, you know, why faithful? Well, faithful uh, in contrast to necessarily being successful. We, we want to be faithful to the, uh, the commands of our Lord Christ, of our King. Um, we want to be healthy, and, and, and we put that in there because we know that there's no such thing as a perfect church. As soon as any one of us joins that so-called perfect church, it is no longer perfect, <laughs> if you see what I mean. And spirit-filled because the Holy Spirit is, is probably um, one of the chief marks of the age of the church, that it is the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit that gives fruit. And so we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to be at work among us. And then last week I talked about um, what does it look like for, the, for uh, a church to make God's kingdom visible among us? And, and just from that one uh, brief passage in Romans uh, where Paul describes the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And, and we talked about what do those things look like in the life of the church and in this uh, 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 contemporary time? Well, this week I want to back up, and I want to just look at that phrase, what does it mean to promote the kingdom? Um, and in some ways we promote it by making it visible, uh, giving the world a glimpse of, of that future kingdom to come as we live under the lordship of Christ in the present. Um, but I want to talk about um, some, some specific things that we are doing or that we, we, we want to be doing, we want to be about in order to promote um, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of, of God in our own midst, and then throughout um, our, our community and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And um, as we look at that question, what does it mean to promote the kingdom? Um, I'm going to be working through several uh, uh, ways that we do this. Um, today, I'm going to be looking at, at two kind of indirect ways. So there, there are kind of indirect ways to promote the kingdom, and then there are direct ways. And indirect ways um, have to do with issues, you know, like um, prayer and praise. And, and, and that's where I'm going to be focusing today. Uh, in, in the coming, we could be looking at more direct ways. Um, what does it mean to teach and equip the people of God as disciples? That's very critical to our calling as a church. Um, that's great commission calling. You know, it's very direct. Um, and then uh, what does it mean to have conversations, you know, that 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 how do we make disciples? Well, first, you have to have conversations with people who don't know Christ. Um, we have to understand how to um, promote the kingdom through our, our lips and not just our lives. So that's where we'll be going. But, but today, we're just looking at these, um, these more indirect ways in which we promote the coming of the kingdom. 
And I'm going to begin with Paul's letter to the Colossians, um, but it's just uh, where we're going to start. This is a topical sermon, and, and so just be working through several passages, in fact. But with that said, would you rise just out of respect for the, the hearing and the reading of the Word of God? So Colossians 1, 13 and um, 14. He, that's a reference to God the Father, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, open your word up to us and our hearts to your word. May we know you better. May we love you more through Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin um, just by um, discussing the question, what do we mean by promoting the kingdom of God? And what does that phrase mean to us? Um, It is the calling of churches to promote the kingdom, and here I'm going to be a little technical in terms of the language. Um, when we generally speak, uh, uh, you know, you can use this language, but, but technically speaking, we promote the kingdom. We do not build the kingdom, okay? Um, and, and, and part of this goes to the question of who does what? What are we responsible for? What is God responsible for? And so what we want to see is where the, the, the New Testament takes us in terms of understanding this question, who does what? when it comes uh, to the kingdom of God. And in First Corinthians, or Colossians 1, um, uh, 13, 14, Paul uses the language of kingdoms to say that at the time of our spiritual conversion, that is, at the time that we were redeemed by faith in Jesus, we were transferred from one kingdom to another. Okay? We are transferred from one kingdom to another. And specifically, we're delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So on the one hand, we have two kingdoms that are in view, two kingdoms that continue to the present. There's the first is the kingdom of the domain of darkness. This is the, the kingdom that is under the, the sway of Satan, in some sense under the dominion of Satan. And then there's this other kingdom that is described as being the kingdom of his, God the Father's, beloved son. That is, so this is the kingdom of Jesus. This is the kingdom where Jesus reigns, where he is the king. And it's interesting how um, the kingdom of his beloved son is described. Well, it's described in this way in verse 14, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And what this is telling us, um, well, it tells us several things, but one thing is it's telling us that this kingdom is, it's not a kingdom about borders. It's not with, you know, human governments. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about these spiritual realities, these spiritual realms or spiritual kingdoms. There is the kingdom of darkness. This is the kingdom in which people are 
bound, um, uh, kind of under the dominion of Satan to their sin. They're in bondage to their sin. And the kingdom of King Jesus is that kingdom where we found freedom, where we've been redeemed. We've, we found um, uh, release uh, and liberty from this bondage to sin. Um, and we experience actually forgiveness, and we're brought into a reconciled relationship with the triune God. This is a spiritual kingdom. And note that Jesus is the king of this kingdom. This is his kingdom. Um, and, and, and what we need to understand is that this means that the only way that we can enter into Christ's kingdom is to go through Jesus. There's no, you know, like in Pilgrim's Progress, there are these people who get on the path to the celestial city by climbing over a fence. <laughs> they're, not, they're not going through, you know, the wicked gate and, and so forth from the very beginning. Uh, they're trying to take a shortcut to get to the celestial city. What, what uh, Paul is saying, there's, there's, the New Testament tells us there's no end around Jesus. The only way that we make this transferal from one kingdom to the other, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you might say, the kingdom of Christ, is to go through the king, is to receive the king. That's why in John 14, Jesus just says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a spiritual kingdom. And it is only entered into through faith in Jesus. And for this reason, we should never confuse the kingdom of God with any kind of earthly kingdom. This is not a political thing we're talking about. And nor should we confuse the kingdom of God with societal change. The kingdom is spiritual. The kingdom is present where Jesus reigns. Now, hopefully, that kingdom has a positive effect on the surrounding society. Hopefully, there is some societal positive change that flows out of the presence of God's kingdom, but we can't confuse the two. Let me put it this way. Just do a thought experiment. Imagine that you did have this society where you had perfectly just government. You, you know, the judicial system was great, Everybody is treated uh, equally. Um, it's a place where, you know, widows and orphans and the oppressed and, and those on the periphery are taken care of by that society. We would say, yeah, this would be a glorious society. You know, good education, good government. But no one actually has made Jesus king of their lives. You could have all of these societal structures in place, but if Jesus is not king, if he's not the one reigning, this is, you, you can see where this clearly is not the kingdom of God. And this has ramifications then, and, and I'll get to that more next week, um, in terms of what the mission of the church is. And I'll just say in general, the mission of the church is not to do everything, not to do everything that's possible, not to do everything that we could do. The actual mission of the church is more narrow. And we have to, and, and if we don't achieve the mission of the church, you could still have good changes in society. You could still have, um, uh, the, the poor and the hungry being taken care of. But if the gospel is not being proclaimed, if people are not being trained and, and equipped as followers of Jesus, then the church fails. So the church's mission is somewhat narrow, okay? And again, it's not to say that we shouldn't be involved to some degree in 
what we might call works of charity and, and um, uh, uh, promoting the good of the surrounding community. Um, in some sense, we should be, but it's not the heart of the mission that's given to the church, nor should it be confused again with the kingdom of God. This is where, uh, and, and so uh, just come now to a second piece on this. Even when we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we understand it as a spiritual realm over which Christ rules his redeemed, his forgiven subjects, we also want to understand that it is not for us to do the building. Okay? How is the kingdom built? The kingdom is built as people submit to Jesus. <laughs> the kingdom is built as people, their eyes are open to what Jesus has done, that he is the son of God, that he is the son of David. He is the long ago prophesied king who is establishing his kingdom right now. If, if you, I do, if you missed last week's sermon, it probably would be helpful for you to go back and hear that because there we talked about how that kingdom has come um, in an inaugurated fashion. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God is present already, but it will only come in its visible fullness and glory when Jesus returns and makes all things new, okay? When that judgment comes, sin is done away with, that's when there are no more tears, no more mourning, no more death. Okay? That's when the kingdom comes in fullness. So we have this kind of two-stage process of the kingdom coming. And so, and, just, and this is just a, a, a technical thing. I, I don't care if you use the language, but I just want you to understand the difference. We promote, we don't build. Well, what do I mean? Well, even in Colossians, who is it that does the transferring <laughs> from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? It's God who does that transferring. If we look at a, a parallel passage like Matthew 16, 18, and here Jesus is using the word church and kingdom somewhat closely. They're not an exact one for one. They don't equal each other. But, but the, the church is the, 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 the most visible representation of the kingdom. So in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I, who's the I? Jesus. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, it's important to understand who does the building. Who does what? What are we responsible for? In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. He's talking about his own ministry as a ministry of planting and watering. He who plants, he who who waters, um, uh, they're not anything, but only God who makes things grow. Only God is the one who ultimately builds. He's the one who expands the kingdom as individuals, their eyes are opened by the Spirit of God, um, and they are, you know, brought into the kingdom, uh, those whom Christ died for and, and uh, shed his blood for. This is a work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, even the Spirit is involved in the work of regenerating, of bringing new spiritual life. And we see this in places like Ezekiel 37, and then Jesus refers to that in John 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. 
It is the Spirit who causes and brings the fruit. And God does this according to his own mysterious will and timing. So when we talk about, you know, and, and again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself for next week, but when we talk about what is faithful outreach, what does faithful evangelism look like? Well, from our end, here's what we're responsible for. Faithfulness in proclaiming the good news, the proclaiming the gospel, is not measured in conversions. Okay? It's not measured in changed hearts. Our work is measured by our own faithfulness to bear witness to Jesus through our lips, primarily, and our lives, and then we leave the results up to God. The ultimate building, the growing, that's God's job. (laughs) Our job is just to be faithful in the things that God has given us to do, to be witnesses, to plant seeds, to water those seeds. So now I want to work through just um, today just two ways that are indirect but critical in our promotion of the kingdom of God. This is what we as a church believe we're we're called to do. We're called to promote the kingdom. And so um, these are less direct ways. And so first, uh, what we need to see is that we promote the kingdom uh, through prayer. The kingdom of God is promoted through prayer. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house. Who's the builder? <laughs> the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labors, uh, those who build it, labor in vain. We're not the builders. <laughs> We're the laborers. We plant, we water, we witness. But it's ultimately God who has to provide the establishment, the, the expansion, the, the growth, the building itself. And so with that in mind, if this is true, that God is ultimately the one who brings people to new life in Christ, he's the one who transfers people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, then one of the starting points, what, what just logically flows from this, is our critical need to be about prayer, to be about intercession, so that the Lord would be at work. And there are two things that immediately flow out of this directive to pray. Um, Again, just going to James. James is commenting on how people want many things from the Lord, but they don't experience those things. And his first uh, response to this is, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Or the old King James, you, ye have not, because ye ask not. That's as simple as it gets. That James is saying that prayer is absolutely critical, both for our lives as individual um, Christians, but also uh, as our life together as a church. And why is prayer so important? Well, there are two things that take place. Prayer helps cultivate within us a dependence and trust on God. We are called, spiritually speaking, to be like children. God is our Father. And we must learn to trust in him to supply and to provide. And one of the ways we demonstrate this trust, this dependence, is by cultivating prayer, both together and as individuals. And then secondly, when God answers those prayers, who gets the glory? 
So this is designed not only to build dependence within us, but also it promotes the glory, our ultimate purpose, which is to render glory, to enjoy God forever. Um, So this is also the outcome of a praying people. And so for this reason, Jesus commands his disciples uh, in Matthew 9. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, that's interesting. Not just pray. (laughs) I pray, you know, weekly or something for for missionaries and for laborers to raise up. But do we pray earnestly? This is what Jesus is calling us to be about to pray earnestly for laborers, for workers to be raised up um, because the harvest is plentiful. And, um, you know, one of the the natural effects of an increasingly secular society is there are more people out there to reap, to harvest. You know, it's like when the giant is big, it's hard to miss the target. (laughs) So um, this is something the Lord has called us to be about. And then in Colossians, Paul um, uh, echoes this kind of request, but he directs it towards the laborers themselves. In Colossians 4, uh, Paul writes, at the same time, pray also for us. Now, understand, he's writing this while being under house arrest. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, I dare say that when most people are in prison, they're not thinking about how they can improve as a witness, how they can improve in their proclamation of the gospel. But Paul's praying, even while I am you know, um, under house arrest, Pray that the Lord opens up opportunities and pray that I would be faithful in taking advantage of those opportunities and being faithful in my uh, clear witness to Jesus. These are the kinds of prayers we need. Our prayers are for the laborers and for those who labor. Our prayers are for ourselves to be faithful in recognizing the opportunities to serve as a witness when they arise. And another way, and and I put this in in the outline um, on the back of your bulletin, but another uh, model for prayer is what's called the Lighthouses of Prayer. And it's just a nice little acronym to help give us a way to pray for those who are, you know, our unbelieving neighbors or friends or family members or coworkers. And it's under the acronym of BLESS. And the idea is that on a daily basis, there might be five individuals that you're taking five minutes to pray through these, uh, uh, through these needs under the acronym BLESS. So the B represents the body, where you're just praying for their health, for their uh, protection and strength. The L of BLESS, labor. You're praying for their work, for their financial situation. E is emotional for their sense of well-being, their joy and their peace and and hope, and ultimately that they would find that joy and peace in the Lord. And then S, the first S is social. You're you're praying for their relationships, for their marriages, for their children, for their friendships. And then the the second S of bless is their spiritual needs. And this is where we, we begin to pray, Lord, if they don't know you, or maybe they're in a, they're experiencing some crisis, Lord, open their eyes to the glory of Jesus. 
open their eyes to their need for God's help, that these, these needs are beyond them and that they need Christ, and not just for human crises, but ultimately for their spiritual condition to be made right and to be at peace with God, their creator. And one of the things that you can do and, um, is to do these prayer walks. This is a great way to walk through your neighborhood if, if that works you know, in your, your situation, but to, to walk through the area where, where your, your neighbors live and to lift them up and, and get to know their name so you can pray for them by name, praying for these um, needs. So we promote the kingdom through prayer, but we also promote the kingdom through praise. We promote it through praise. And here I am referring to our, especially our weekly gathered praise, our weekly gathered worship as God's people. As far back as the Psalms, the praise of God's people is viewed as a witness to the nations. It's a witness to the nations. And so in a place like Psalm 96, the psalmist writes, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Now, what's interesting is where does the psalmist, how does he envision this this witness to the nations taking place? Well, you continue on in um, uh, verses 6 and following. There he says, splendor. And majesty are before God. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Here, this this declaration of glory to the nations is envisioned as taking place as the people gather for worship at the courts. That's the sanctuary. This is a reference to the temple. It was understood by Solomon that in creating and building the temple in Jerusalem, that this would serve as a witness to the Gentiles around, um, uh, around them and around him. In the second temple, there was a court established. It was called the Court of Gentiles. And some believe that this was to keep the Gentiles out. (laughs) But in fact, it was created to give the Gentiles a place where they too could join in the worship of Yahweh. And then the local synagogues, this was the the Jewish form of their, this was the kind of the Jewish local church. the synagogues were understood as a place where Gentiles could come and join in the worship of Yahweh. And so someone like the Jewish historian Josephus records um, that the, the, the Jewish colony at Antioch attracted multitudes of Greeks. Praise, the gathered worship of believers promotes the kingdom by declaring God's glory in the presence of of the world in the presence of outsiders. And then in 1 Corinthians, just turning to chapter 14, Paul writes this, If therefore the whole church comes together 
and to all speak in tongues. And in this case, tongues, uh, one of the, the, the aspects are, uh, of the gifts of the Spirit. But if you just have tongues, you don't understand what's being said. So he's making this contrast between uh, speech that is unintelligible with speech that is intelligible. So he says, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay, that's straightforward. But note Paul's expectation that in the gathered worship, that there would be visitors, that there would be outsiders, those who have questions, those who have been invited to join, and who have not at least at this point placed their faith in Christ. And Paul continues, but... If all prophecy, and and here I think he's using that word prophesy as a a catch-all term for intelligible speech, whether it comes through the preaching, whether it's through the prayers, or the singing of hymns together, um, this all kind of comes under this, this idea of prophecy here. And then an unbeliever or outsider enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see what he expects to take place? As the people just, you know, drive to their churches on Sunday, as they gather together, that this is a way of participating in the promotion of God's kingdom. Because as people gather, their hearts are laid They're disclosed. How? Why? Because the word of God is penetrating as the spirit of God is at work in their hearts and in their lives, revealing to them their need, opening up to them, uh, their eyes, the glory of the king, the glory of Jesus. And so as they gather, there's a sense that the presence of the Lord is in this place. And so what you were doing on a weekly basis, you didn't even know it. You're promoting the kingdom of God. And this is why, so when I say, when I, when I do the, the Lord's Supper, and part of what I say is, is a loose rendition of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, but part of what I say is, is, as often as you take or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The saving death of the risen Lord until he comes. Well, that's just taken, you know, it's a loose rendition of 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul is the one who's saying, and the Spirit of God through him, every time you take part in the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming uh, the glory of Christ. You are promoting the kingdom. This, just last Saturday, um, during the Men's Bible Study, we were uh, working through Acts 22. And in Acts 22 is partly where the Apostle Paul describes his conversion uh, on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting that there are two questions that the Apostle Paul asks of Jesus when Jesus shows up to him in a vision. The first question is, who are you, Lord? <laughs> this, this glorious being shows up. Who are you? And Jesus tells him, you know, it is me. The second question that Paul asks is, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Well, I was doing a little reading, and Bonhoeffer takes, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a, a pastor and theologian from Germany during the World War II period, he takes this passage and he says, before we can answer the what do you want me to do, 
we have to know who are you. And that's in part what God is doing. Every time we gather for worship, is he's reminding, he's teaching, he's showing us who it is that is king, who it is that we worship, and therefore now we know what we are to proclaim. And so worship becomes a critical means of promoting the kingdom of God. Our calling is to promote. It's not to build. Building is the Lord's work. Our calling is to be faithful. And two critical means of accomplishing the promotion of God's kingdom is through prayer and through the weekly gathered praise of God's people. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Father of all, hear us as we pray for all people in the name of Christ. Remember in your enduring grace, your entire church, all of those who join with us in prayer, all our brothers and sisters around the world who stand with us and us with them in need of your grace and truth. Pour out upon us the riches of your mercy so that we, redeemed in Christ and steadfast in faith, may ever give praise to your great name. And wherever your people gather to worship, may those who attend experience your life-giving presence. May it be light and joy and peace for your people. To you be the glory and praise now and forever. Amen.